Hi, and welcome to Food to Go, the podcast brought to you by the New Food Team. I'm Beth and Grills, editor of New Food, and as always, I'm joined by the deputy editor, Joshua Minchin. Hello, Josh. Hi, Beth. How are you doing today? Very well, thank you. I'm going to anticipate you're going to ask me about the weather. Didn't really appreciate that tone to start off with, but I have been warned, listeners, by the boss not to talk about the weather because apparently we do it far too often. Mm-hmm. But it's very hot today, isn't it? It's, <laughs> it is warm. We're in a corner of the office. I feel like we're breaking the fourth wall here. Like you get a little peek behind the curtain. We're in the office. Quite a warm corner of said office. We're about to turn the fan off because otherwise you'll hear whirring in the background. And just to top it off, we're about to shut all the windows because there is a chap outside who I'm sure, lovely though he is, he didn't get the mail about recording a podcast today. So he is mowing his lawn quite loudly. So will the quality of the content remain consistent over the next hour as we get hotter and hotter who knows you'll have to stick around to find out i guess that's that's show business oh you had to do it didn't you you had to talk about the weather and you know i'm not going to be typically british and carry on this conversation i'm going to move it away to something completely different this is going to sound very random to the listeners but i promise there is context josh do you like seafood? I do, yes. Not as much as some people. My partner, for example, will probably opt for seafood over anything else on a menu, whereas I probably would opt for a meat dish. But yeah, I do like seafood, yeah. Oh, okay. And and tell me, tell me about a, a seafood experience that you really enjoyed. Oh, what a question. Right, so two come to mind. First one, we took, or I took said partner to a lovely restaurant in Borough Market. So listeners that are familiar with London might know about Borough Market. It's an amazing food market. It's open six days a week. If you're in London, definitely check it out. It's great. Mm. Anyway, it's the restaurant called Wright Brothers. They just do seafood and they do a seafood platter, which is essentially, it's cold and it's like oysters, prawns, clams, just, yeah, oh, indeed. It was delicious. They've got, their, their thing is oysters. So there's, I think there was six different types of oysters from six parts of the UK and France, which was pretty cool. I was a bit fished out by the end, <laughs> but my partner just plowed through it and ate her body weight in prawns, which <laughs> is like definitely what the trip was for. So I was really pleased. So that was great. Another time was in Northern Spain. So I like to go on holiday in Cantabria, which is like a province in North Spain, kind of between Bilbao and like Galicia, if you know Spain. They cook what I can only describe as paella in squid zinc, but these squid zinc for the sauce. Oh, it's delicious. We've had it in Barcelona. We have, yeah. yeah, it was lovely. It is lovely. So it's lovely, rich. It's all the good bits of paella, or think of a, like, I suppose like a risotto, but then yeah, just fried off in squid zinc. Yeah. So it's lovely and rich. So you sparked a fond memory there. Yeah, it was nice. Mm. We were just off La Rambla. It was lovely, wasn't it? Yeah, 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 yeah. great. And it's funny that you mentioned about the seafood platter because that's actually something I wrote about a little while ago about a new trend called sea couterie. I think it's taking on a charcuterie sure, yeah. board. And that's basically this trend that we're, we're going to start seeing where chefs do platters, but they use basically from... The I think it's from gill to, I don't know, whatever. Essentially everything, no waste from the fish, which is really interesting. We might start seeing that. So you might you might get more more platters. Well, I hope so. I love a platter. I don't know about you. I love a platter. It's a, it's a great way to eat as well. So it's really off topic. It's a great way to eat. It's like you share the food, everyone's chatting. See, I, it's very sociable. I, I quite like no, it. No, a platter for me is a nightmare because I don't like sharing my food. Oh, you, Joey doesn't share food, yeah. Well, I just, I know what I want. Right. And then other people who get food envy are like, well, that looks good. And it's like, 
No. But that's the whole point of the platter and that everyone can try a bit of everything. No, no, because I don't eat quick enough. And then and then I get very little and then I'm just I'm just you just end up hungry. Ah, oh, see, I was raised in the house of seven, so yeah, yeah. I eat fast. Otherwise if you didn't eat fast, somebody else would have it. So Yeah. So usually I would have it actually, that's that's a lie. It would me that would have a people's food. So you're basically you're the person that's been eating my food. I set the pace of eating in my household. You keep up with me or I'll eat your food as well. Oh. Yeah, ruled of an iron fist. But now it's definite rules of an iron fist. And I've I've heard, Bethan, that you've got a favourite fish that <laughs> listeners, she's absolutely desperate to tell you about this fish. And it's not even a fish. It's not a fish, but it's known as a Mexican walking fish. So I, it's not a fish. No, well, it's an, it's an amphibian, but it looks like a fish, sort right. of. It looks like a, a fish lizard. <laughs> yeah, go and look it up. And the best part of this little feature is... As we all know, Bethan loves speaking foreign languages. The best part of this feature is hearing Bethan Grills, editor of New Food, pronounce this word. What's it called? Axolotl. Yeah, good effort. I reckon it's like axolotl in Spanish, but I reckon the, I could be wrong. So as we say every single week, if you are from Mexico and you do speak, or any part of the Hispanic-speaking world, do write in, phonetically spell A-X-O-L-O-T-L, the Mexican walking fish, which... Beth and Grills absolutely loves because it looks like a Pokemon. That is, yeah, that is actually it. It does. They are so cute. Really, really cute looking. And they can also grow back limbs. There's, I don't know how popular we are with the marine biology community, but I'm sure we've lost all of them now when you've just said that your favourite fish is just because it looks like a Pokemon, not because it's got amazing gills or it swims fast or sorry i am sorry i'm just a i'm just a sucker for cute for cute yeah. things it is cute look it up it is cute it it's is. a cool fish i've seen it before so yeah. i suppose a bit odd that we're talking about fish today but there is a reason behind it isn't there? yeah yeah there is a purpose because in today's episode we are talking about seafood so researchers suggest that humans consume nearly 150 million tonnes of seafood every year. And I've been reliably informed by Josh's GCSE maths. Yeah, great bit, yeah. Yeah, that is the same as uh, 411 Empire State Buildings. Yeah, I should add, I've not weighed the Empire State Building myself. Why not? Yeah, that's probably a decent field to go on, isn't it? I'm not sure, you probably get quite short shrift from the... People on reception, if you ask to weigh the building, but um, <laughs> maybe, we'll, I don't know, who knows, we'll try it. But 411, that's a lot. So we eat that worth of fish every year. That's actually just mad. Think about how much meat we eat, though, because, I mean... Yeah, I was going to say, 411 Empire States is both a lot, but also not a lot, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So well, essentially what we're trying to say is we eat a lot of seafood we do. and we're probably going to start eating even more of it as the world grapples to find sustainable ways to feed itself over the coming decades. And because of that, sustainable aquaculture is going to become a, a crucial movement. Yeah, you're spot on. To find out a bit more about this, we spoke to Andy Zinger, CEO of EIT Food, to find out how it is supporting some amazing research and innovation in the sustainable agriculture sector, both in Europe and beyond. I'm delighted to be joined by Andy Zinger, CEO of EIT Food. Andy, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Sure, my pleasure. Okay, just to start off with, Ali, can you just tell both myself and our listeners a little bit about EIT Food and what it does? Yeah, certainly. So EIT Food is a European Union-funded public-private partnership 
that aims to transform the food system so as to make people healthier and the planet healthier. So, and we do this by means of a uh, of annual calls. So we do calls which pertain to challenges in the food system around certain focus areas. And we have six focus areas that include sustainable agriculture, targeted nutrition, circularity of the food system, but also importantly, sustainable aquaculture. And then some of our members or many of our members and non-members then submit proposals and we then co-fund projects that hopefully will lead to a really significant impact uh, around the food system. We're very well set with KPIs and uh, we quantified the impact we want to achieve in the next seven years. So look at us as a orchestrator, someone who puts together the challenges and invites in parties to submit proposals that helps to address and solve these challenges across the entire food system from farm to fork. That is a really big remit. I bet you're always busy. You mentioned sustainable aquaculture there. We often hear about sustainable agriculture, but what does sustainable aquaculture mean for you? Well, sustainable aquaculture is the controlled farming of water-based or aquatic animals and plants in water environments. And in order to meet the demand in a, in a kind of a sustainable way, aquaculture must be economically, socially, and environmentally friendly. So, for example, it has to be a business opportunity, a viable business opportunity in order to bring in all kinds of different businesses, including very small ones. It must also be socially responsibility and contribute to good health of people. And it should not create a significant disruption of ecosystems or affect biodiversity. So that's really it in a nutshell. And Andy, why do we need sustainable aquaculture or sustainable seafood at all? Yeah, well, the thing is, right now, European Union citizens consume an average of around 23 kilos of seafood every, each and every year. And Europe is one of the largest importers of fish and seafood. But right now, many of the practices in aquaculture are quite unsustainable and come with high environmental costs. Like, for example, I mentioned already biodiversity loss, but there's other things like water pollution and ecosystem damage. And... As you well know, all the oceans and waterways are somehow all connected, all part of a greater whole in a system. And what we do in one place obviously has an impact on the ecosystem in another place. And just in order for us to ensure that everybody can continue to farm these environments, we need to practice responsibility and sustainable aquaculture. So, I mean, aquaculture right now is one of the fastest growing food industries in the world, and it has a lot of challenges and opportunities, obviously, right? So I mentioned a few of them, and through innovation, we can address some of these challenges clearly, which is what we're doing with this network of partners and non-partners. So it will also help us if we do our if we do our job right if we do the right calls and solve the right challenges it can actually help us to achieve the united nations sustainable development goals some of them anyways right so that's i think it that's why we need sustainable aquaculture and seafood sorry i just can't get my head around 23 kilos and that's a massive start it's a lot of seafood i'm not sure i eat that much to hear but perhaps some people eat 50 kilos and that balances that out yeah, but by the way, just so you know, European Union citizens also consume 70 kilos, seven zero of meat every year. So this is all part of 
of um, you know a variety of proteins that are taken in. And again, all the projections say that the seafood consumption will go way up. That's what I mentioned earlier. It's the fastest growing food industry in the world, the aquaculture one is, right? So it's an interesting way of replacing meat through seafood at this time. It's largely because I think people are beginning to say, we need to diversify our protein sources somehow. So you read a lot in the press about meat, right? So meat has its place in in the food pyramid, of course, yet Right now, when you're looking at the press and what's written about meat, it's there's a lot of negative information about it, right? So it's not good for the environment, and there's absolute truth to that. There's also, uh, if you eat too much meat, it's bad for health. That's also true. So I think people, however, there's still a place, as I'm saying, there's a place in both in the healthy nutrition pyramid for meat. Maybe, however, not as much. So I think people are now beginning to say, how can I diversify my protein sources, right? So, and that's where they're saying, okay, well, seafood is a good one, as is plant-based meat alternatives. And as might be within that, other things like all the different items that you can actually grow with sustainable aquaculture, right? So, because keep in mind, sustainable aquaculture is not just about the farming of fish. It also includes other aquatic or water-based animals and shellfish. So, for example, shellfish, but also seaweed and algae. And aquaculture can be practiced both in the sea and marine environment, but also in a land-based system, right, through cultivated farming, fish farming, or sorry, aquatic farming technologies and uh, systems. So, yeah, so there you go. It's all part of the big diversification of protein sources. You mentioned fish farming there. Is sustainable aquaculture just fish farming alone or or is it a lot more than that? Yeah, it's much more than that, right? So there's, as I said, you know, there's, there's the shellfish. There's also seaweed and algae. In fact, the European Union is really looking at algae as one of the potential future sources of alternative uh, protein sources, including but not limited for livestock, right? So it's, but it's also for people, right? So as you may know, in uh, Japan, uh, people consume quite a bit of seaweed and uh, also algae-based products. And that's what uh, sustainable aquaculture encompasses. There's a lot of lot of people that do believe that algae and, you know, and seaweeds might be the road to a well-diversified protein future. Andy, of course, we've spoken to yourself and to EIT Food in the past, and, and we know that you run an amazing competition relating to sustainable aquaculture. But can you just explain to our listeners a little bit about how this competition works and perhaps highlight some of the most exciting ideas that you've come across while running it? Absolutely. Happy to share that. So uh, first of all, I mentioned earlier that one way or a very important way by which we as EIT Food work is by putting out calls for projects around certain challenges, right? And in December 2020, we ran one of those calls, which we call Sustainable Agriculture Competition. And we received the total, we received proposals from a total of 85 organizations, both from within the EIT food community, but also from outside of it, right? So again, this is an open system and we always invite in proposals from non-members of this association. And from all of those proposals, we we selected seven projects that we then launched as, as projects within the framework of EIT food co-financing. So one example is 
next tuna. So this is where Atlantic bluefin tuna, which is actually some uh, endangered, and it has never really been effectively farmed, right? And we're now working on a project with this company Next Tuna, whereby they've devised a way by which you can actually have a landlocked, eco-friendly, recirculating aquaculture system that supports the growth and farming of Atlantic bluefin tuna. So, and this is to us a very important first step to prove to prove what, whether or not you can do such a thing, right? To take animals that are normally only fished in oceans and take them into a landlocked kind of uh, uh, farming system. Another one would be a project called Breeze, which is a system for fish health management. So many of the fish, particularly when they're in very close vicinity to each other, like salmon, they may suffer from from um, sea lice, you know, from lice, you know, and and other pathogens that are that are and my, microbials that are growing on their scales. And this particular project is aiming to make this a lot more sustainable, trying to avoid the sea lice and increasing resistance to diseases, and also all the while also increasing awareness of animal welfare and minimizing the environmental footprint. And lastly, just to give you one more to throw in the mix, there's one project called Sustainable Seafood Processing or SUSI Pro, whereby we're developing this consortium that's working on this, again, co-financed by EAT Food, is developing some novel processing technologies that will extend the shelf life of seafood products. So, and what's going on with that is that when the shelf life of seafood products can greatly be extended if microbial growth of harmful pathogens is is avoided. And this project is looking at what are the different ways by which seafood can be handled, farmed, and sustainably managed in order to reduce the amount of microbial growth, which in, a, in turn will then really extend the shelf life of seafood products quite quite a bit. So those are three examples of projects that we're quite excited about. And again, it's always fantastic for us to see all these different proposals coming in. Some of them are just really fantastic and are things that you wouldn't have thought about if you hadn't run this challenge. And so again, those are three of those examples. So there's tuna, there's the fish health management one, and there's one to extend the shelf life by managing the microbial growth of harmful pathogens. Those are three really interesting ones from our point of view. They sound like really fascinating projects and I'm going to hear how enthusiastic you are about them in your voice. But just to take you in a slightly different direction, again, we've spoken about fish farming previously, but I guess that might make some people wince in their seats a bit as they listened because fish farming has got somewhat of a bad name recently. But do you see it as an integral part of our future when it comes to agriculture? Is it something that we're just going to have to employ if we're going to carry on eating seafood? Yeah, I mean, fish farming and sustainable aquaculture is a very important element of of our nutritional future. So there are projections. So first of all, let's face it. So many of the fish species are overfished, right? So they're on the brink of extinction. And that means the only way for us to, again, to continue to diversify our protein sources, including seafood, is for us to do sustainable fish farming, right? So it's just farming practices, which is sustainable aquaculture. And the projections are in order for us to cover the different protein sources, including seafood, 
by 2030, about one third of all seafood consumed will be from aquaculture. So in other words, in order for us to be able to feed the population in the future, and, and by the way, that's even going to be much worse in 2050. So in order to cover the demand of the population for in 2050, you'd actually have to produce twice as much seafood as is fished today. So again, the only way out of this is to do aquaculture and it might as well then be sustainable aquaculture in order to avoid the negative the harmful effects on the environment and biodiversity right so things like you know what folks put in the in the feed and such like so yes it is important it has to be done in order for us to actually continue to have this as a sustainable protein source and just to take you back to some of those projects you mentioned are any of them being put into practice right now are any of those practiced at this time? It's still early days form, you know, so many of these projects include the procurement of equipment and building a certain, you know, like, for example, Next Tuna that includes uh, the building of farming system and uh, circulation systems and such like. So it's, again, it's early days, but uh, what we see right now is that these are going very well. You know, you have to know that we as a as a European Union funded organization, we're very, very keen on making sure there's really good progress that all the milestones are achieved. And if that were the case, we would uh, then either change the project or stop it altogether. So these are all ones of which we feel they have a real strong future. Just another question for you, which I suppose is quite a tricky one. In many parts of the world, seafood is an essential diet component it's it's integral to what people eat and in some regions there just isn't the funding or resources that that can match say europe or north america do you think these projects are feasible to to implement around the world or are they very europe focused and europe centric we believe that all these projects are very scalable right so yes we are a european union financed nonprofit. however we also have communications with and connections to other countries. And we do believe, yes, that these projects are indeed scalable and that other countries can and organizations can learn from this, right? So in fact, when we do do the calls, all of the experts that we bring in to help us with the evaluation are always looking at whether or not the solution can be viable and scalable in the future. And so that way, we make sure that all of this, the, the, the progress, projects can contribute to that healthier and more sustainable food system that we're so much looking to achieve. So there also need to be long-term affordable for both industry and consumers. And we believe that, yes, the solutions that we're looking to implement, that we're working on implementing, that they're all quite scalable and therefore also, also very much transferable to other countries and other businesses. So yes, the answer is a resounding yes. Great. So we've spoken about costs, we've spoken about environment. What are the other major challenges when it comes to sustainable aquaculture? I would say there, there's a few, right? So one of them is we have to make sure that we do all of the work that we do, and this is true for other players as well, with without forgetting the inclusion. So you mentioned already the smaller farmers and, and, and such like, you know, other smaller aquaculture uh, businesses. And we have to continue to do this, right? So we have to continue to find a way that there's a very, very good exchange of, of learnings and also a transfer of technologies, right? And so inclusion is key. We got to make sure that small scale uh, fish farms can survive. We got to make sure that uh, 
groups that normally wouldn't think to, 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 to get into this, this farming environment wouldn't do it. So, and all of this will help to also, the more the sustainable aquaculture is practiced, the more the prices we believe will go down. Now, one other thing that's also, I think, important is for consumer trust. Consumers, consumers need to be able to see where the, the seafood is coming from, right? So there have been some trust issues in the past where maybe where, where food fraud happened, you know, mislabeling or species being replaced in processing or such like. And if consumers are able to actually know where the seafood is coming from, we believe that that's also going to help to increase the consumer trust, which is another really important impact pathway that we promised to the citizens of the European Union that we would achieve. So therefore, we're working on tools that make that happen as well. So I think those are some of the challenges. There's also another one is is to make sure that aquaculture is practiced in a sustainable way that includes also to find alternatives for the fish feed, right? So right now, fish feed is given, is, is done a lot from fish meal, which is basically ground up fish. And there are now alternatives that we've worked on, right? So things like uh, feeding fish uh, algae or omega-3 from oils that come from rapeseed uh, production and and many other sources, including insects. So so that's another thing that we feel is a challenge that needs to be addressed in order for us to achieve at this sustainable aquaculture aquaculture goal. And how do you bring people along for the journey when you implement these projects, especially in places that have been doing things a certain way for, for a very long time? As I mentioned, the demand for seafood keeps rising. And as I mentioned, by 2050 or even by, you know, like a little ways after 2030, it's going to be impossible, in actual fact, for just fisheries to cover the demand that exists in the world for seafood proteins, seafood-based proteins. So the aquaculture is going to have to be the answer for it. So, And I think the good news is that the fisheries that are currently fishing can probably, as long as they practice it in environmentally sustainable ways, they can continue to do this. But at the same time, this has to be supplemented by aquaculture techniques and, and aquaculture methods, right? So therefore, I think... Both will exist for a very, very long time. So folks will continue to fish for seafood, but at the same time, in order to cover the, the growing demand, we also have to have sustainable aquaculture. Andy, how do you envision technology in this field progressing in the future? Are there any major gaps that need to be filled, for example? So I mentioned a few, right? So I do believe that, uh, first of all, I'm very convinced that that sustainable aquaculture has a great future, right? So it is, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the most rapidly growing industries in food in the world. And again, aquatic protein will be a major source of uh, people's diets by 2050. Now, we believe that as technology and innovation continue to advance, aquaculture will no longer be limited to offshore environments, right? So, and fish farming will be increasingly taking place closer to home. I, I hinted at that earlier. I said, you know, more new techniques for landlocked fish farming are happening. And onshore facilities enable seafood to be produced closer to the marketplaces and urban areas. They help to bring the uh, consumers, the, the transport is, is closer. So the shelf life is, the shelf life issues are reduced and CO2 emissions are reduced. So all of this, and also 
over time, we hope also that this will lead to a reduction in cost for the consumers. So all of those, so the, the future is going to be more and more landlocked systems that are going to be used, right? And so I think that's the most important piece that, that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you that is going to happen going forward. Yeah. That's a very brave prediction, Andy. And I'll, I'll be back in 10 years' time to see how accurate it was. But thank you so much for talking to us today. And we're, we're so excited to see how these projects at EIT progress in the future. Um, so do keep in touch and make sure you give us an update in a year's time, a couple of years' time, so we can see how things have moved along. Andy, thank you so much for your time. Hopefully we'll speak to you very soon. Okay, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity of sharing our views with your listeners. Thanks so much. Well, I really enjoyed that very fishy segment. Yeah, I'm glad you did. You just ignored the pun there, didn't you? No, I'm just sick of your puns. (laughs) We're going to print soon, listeners, and it's just nonstop. And to think that sometimes the editor has the cheek to edit out some of my cracking jokes in our content when that's that's the level that we're at Um, i'm glad you liked it yeah andy's brilliant isn't he just a font of knowledge yeah absolutely and there was one point in particular i'd like to pick your brains on a little more because you did venture into this interview solo i was actually on holiday Um, you were i was so Josh, what I want to know really is you ventured a little bit into the realms of aquaculture having a bit of negativity around it. Tell me a little bit more about that. Why is it seen as as negative? Well, I was speaking to Andy about this and you probably heard me did kind of raise it in part, but it's really interesting kind of debate. I think people think, of, first of all, people think of aquaculture as fish farming. There's more to it than that as Andy enlightened us a lot better than I ever could. But I think people think agriculture means sustainable agriculture means fish farming. In a way, it kind of does. As Andy said, like if we, there isn't really another option. If you want to carry on eating the fish that we like to eat, you're going to have to farm them because we've overfished for a very long time. Mm. And I, there's a negative air around fish farming. It, it's seen as kind of artificial or man-made, which which I get because it is you're altering nature in that you're farming fish mm. in a way that you'd farm cattle or sheep and fish aren't supposed to be farmed. We're going to have to change mindsets. And you heard Andy saying there, the work that EIT Food are doing to, to do that, to educate consumers and to sort of say, actually, no, because all the problems that you might have heard about actually with copper kind of fixing. Mm. I remember watching Sea Spiracy when that came, was that like two years ago now? It was mm. mid-pandemic, wasn't it? Yeah. We had a great couple of conversations about that, a great couple of debates. I, I must admit, full disclosure, I didn't enjoy it. I thought it was... Yeah. This is the programme, not the debate. This is the documentary. Yeah, I enjoyed the debate with Beth. The the programme, the documentary, I thought was a little bit negative and perhaps didn't display both sides of the coin, shall we say. There's a segment in that, if you haven't watched it, where the investigator goes to a fish farm, I believe in Scotland, and kind of focuses on this bin where there's loads of fish that have had disease, go through them. And it's not pretty viewing. I will add that he chooses to go to one particular farm, not to six or seven. So yeah. it's a very small sample size. That's where the negativity comes from, I think. I think people would think of fish farming as that, as yeah. loads of fish, some of them are sick. And again, as Andy said, there's, there's, there's programs being put into place to fix that. You heard about the amazing innovation going on with, with fish disease, where they can work out which fish are sick, isolate them, just as you would for a flock of sheep. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was actually my next question. I was going to say, you know, this podcast, yes, it is about seafood, but it's also about innovation. Tell me a little bit about what you learned from Andy about the innovation going in there you said about obviously curing sick fish 
Yeah, that was really interesting. There was the program around the tuna, which I thought was also fascinating. I suppose more generally what I learned is that it's a thriving sector. There's, there's so much innovation and we end up speaking for 25 minutes because of both mine and Andy's time constraints. But I could have sat at Andy for eight hours, I think, and he mm. would have rattled off program after program after program that EIT Food is either looking into or supporting actively. The other thing that I thought was really, really crucial in what EIT is doing is that it's looking at how it can apply it around the world. Listeners of this podcast or regular listeners will know I'm very cynical. My first question for anything like this is, well, how are you going to do it in this place or this place? So my concern straight away with, with some of the programs that, that were being developed is that this is lovely, this is great, and it might work in the UK or in Germany or in the US, developed countries, but are you going to be able to do it in, say, other countries that perhaps aren't developed? Are you going to take this program and do it in Indonesia, yes or no? Like, because that's what it's going to require. That was my first concern, and Andy did allay those fears. And the second one, which again, we, we had this conversation when we discussed vegan versus non-vegan. There's parts of the world that depend on, on fishing, on seafood. It's, yeah. it's not just a means to an end. It's, it's culture, it's, it's livelihood. It's in the same way that there's towns in the UK and in the US that are mining towns or they're steel towns. They're fishing is, there's fishing villages around the world where the entire trade and the culture of that industry, is, of that settlement rather, is, is fishing and seafood. Yeah. It's a difficult conversation to go to somebody who's, father's 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 father was a fisherman and say actually do you know what you can't do it anymore you've got to do it this way mm. but again Andy said that they're working with those kind of communities to to put to work out how they can fuse the two and maintain tradition whilst also influencing modern practices which let's face it we need because yes at the moment we're just fishing everything to death yeah all right on the topic of innovation what are the your thoughts on cultured seafood or plant-based seafood because there are you know like there is with meat you know they're they're doing the same with seafood they are i don't know why maybe because it's not around at the moment maybe if you ask me in five years time i might think differently i don't see how you can recreate the flavor i think the flavor of seafood is so intrinsically linked to where it's from Mm. that makes sense like it's from the sea it tastes of the sea yeah Maybe you could do it with some things, like perhaps like something like sea bass or cod, which is quite a meaty fish. That's mm. what my nan always says when we go out, oh, I love fish, but I need like a meaty fish. This is an interesting one, right? Okay, so let's say they're growing a mussel from themselves. I don't know. What then do they use as the shell? Or do we not have the shell? Because if I was to eat a load of mussels, I'd be a little bit, you know, like you get a whole a whole bowl of mussels with a nice shell and you, you pick them out and it's really... And that's the theatre, isn't it? That's the point. That's... Such a major part of eating that dish. What do you then make the shells from? Well, I think you probably wouldn't. I think, say, for that, it's like we say with everything, isn't it? If you can sleep mussels, perhaps then when I cook a paella and I just buy a bag of frozen, like a kind of mixed seafood where you mm. get some squid in there, some mussels, some clams, that might be that might be cell-based. Yeah. Or that might be plant-based. But then if you want a bowl of mousse marinière, marinière um, I've just butchered that French, so I do apologise for one out there. <laughs> if you do want a bowl of mussels that yeah. you want to pick out, then you probably still can have mussels. In the same way that I might buy plant-based mints from a bolognese, but if I want a ribeye steak, I just would buy a steak. Yeah. That's probably where it's going. We should go to the supermarket and buy some plant-based fish because it's available. And see oh, I've not seen it. It is. It is available. And see, and see what it tastes like. I'm happy to be proved wrong. I'm sure I will be. I just don't see how they can get that. I think meat takes on flavour from how it's cooked. Yeah. That makes sense. So, like, 
you can get, say, a piece of plant-based meat, cook it on a barbecue, and you'll still get that kind of smoked flavour. Yeah, yeah. I suppose meat's about the, more about the texture. And what's added to it. And, yeah. And See like, what I'm trying to say? And it's kind of, when you say about meat, it's kind of succulent, isn't it? It has to have kind of, like, the juiciness. Whereas fish, I do get what you mean. It has to have that that kind of, well, fishy flavour. Like mussels, for example. Mm. You literally just chuck in, like, steam. They open. You say, if you don't yeah. smoke them or, like, yeah. Don't do that. You do put you do put them in a nice sauce though, and they yeah. get a bit of like a lovely piece of like if you take it, if you get a really nice piece of fish, mm. you just wrap it up and put it under the under the grill for ten minutes, yeah. and that's it. There's no you, make, you season it, of course, but you don't you don't like put it on smoke or to see what I'm trying to say. Yeah, that's going to be one of the challenges that they have. We've gone off on a little bit of a tangent here, but I think it's an interesting discussion. And the plant based sector, you know, it's not un- it's not unique to the seas category because all of the plant-based categories are you know really that is their biggest challenge to get you know to mimic the the real thing absolutely i think the work that eit food are different uh, doing is a bit different anyway and i think that sector will develop naturally mm. i think it will and i think within five years i'll be eating plant-based fish just with meat i mean every type of meat you want to get now you can get plant-based yeah alternatives I think cell based is, is, is coming. I think yes. it really is coming. It's probably going to take a little bit longer. I see cell based meat as a really exciting long term solution because I feel like that could replace a lot of what we eat. As good as plant based gets, I don't think it replaces. Like, for example, I use like saying ribeye steak. For me, you'll never get somebody who enjoys ribeye steak eating a plant based steak. I don't think that will ever happen. But I feel like you might eat a cultured piece of steak you might eat cultured prawns we are definitely going to get cultured meat i spoke to a company instantly before we were recording based in australia one of two in australia it's not a big it's not a big industry there which is bizarre because they're so close to singapore he was saying the you know right now they're not making any money right because you can't you can't sell it it's not commercialized but there are so many investors and that's not unique to Australia, you know, that's happening all around the world. People are investing in this because they see that technology as something worthwhile to put money into because it's got a future. So I think you're right. I think we are going to see cultured meat um, and we are going to follow Singapore in doing so. It's just going to take a bit longer because, you know, the the regulations. Absolutely. And the work that and in the folks at the IT Food and the, and the wonderful program they support is, is kind of holding up the other end of the of the fort as well in that we are developing ways to to fish sustainably yeah. so in 30 40 50 years time we can still continue to enjoy fish that comes from the sea not from a lab or from plants yeah. which is really important because again i, I still maintain this point i think as you can develop those two other two things wonderfully but you are still going to want to bottle mussels now and again mussels probably is a bad example because we do farm mussels most <laughs> mussels are farmed take cod for example and this is in the UK, obviously, we'll be well aware of cod and chips. If you're not from the UK, cod is what's used almost exclusively in batter um, yeah. with chips. I can't really moan at that because I love cod and chips. But we've overfished cod massively. We have. There's, It's going to run out if we carry on the way we are. So if you can farm cod, you can use programs of the like that EIT Food are using to, to, to make sure that those, those cod in those farms are healthy. You can use genetic modification to make sure that they're designed or not quite really a design, grown, they're suitable for the habitat you want to farm them in, mm. then maybe our children's children will still be able to enjoy 
cotton chips in some, in some newspaper. Whereas at the moment, that's probably not going to happen. And there's another point. Are you going to probably eat plant-based cotton chips? I, I don't think you are. That's a treat. You have, you want proper cod. I don't know. You know, there's, there's things which the thing is, no one knows what's going to happen in the future. It might seem totally bizarre that we, we ate fish from the sea. It, or it might not, or there might be a place for, for all of it. We just don't know what's going to happen. There are things that we do knew now that would have seemed totally unrealistic and bizarre. That's what's exciting about this industry. It's really exciting. And listening to, we've called this episode Sustainable Aquaculture, and obviously that's a massive theme, but really we could have called it innovation because we've just looked at one corner of what EIT Food is doing. Mm. It's a really, really exciting project. It's a really, really exciting organisation. And there's so many different corners of innovation that's going on in the food industry. I've never worked in an industry like it. It's just progressing at such a rate of knots. Yeah. Even yeah. if you think I've been working for New Food for just a little over 18 months, nearly two years, cultured meat hit Singapore and it was a big deal in Singapore when I first joined. That was the first time it was available. Now it's available in restaurants. Like You've got the likes of KFC selling cultured meat, yeah. which is absolutely bizarre. That's in 18 months. <laughs> I mean, just to give a, a further plug to EIT Food and also Nick Food here, right? Andy is writing a column for us, a new one on innovation. And um, that's going to be coming out really soon. So do go check out the website for that and keep your eyes peeled. I do think that is all we have time for. But thank you so much to Andy for joining us on Food to Go. And Josh, thank you for letting me you know, pick your brain as well. And of course, our listeners for lending us your ears for another, what, 40 minutes, hour? I don't know how long this is going to be <laughs> of a cutting edge research and, well, fairly blunt edge uh, maths. I quite enjoyed my little maths input, but I'm sure the listeners did too. Yeah. How accurate was it? <laughs> Remember, all of our podcasts are available via the new food website, Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you do like our ramblings, then please do leave us a five-star review so Josh can enlighten even more people with his weight to building comparisons. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. And before it's goodbye from me, I would just like to add that I think that's the first ever outro we've done in one take. So... It was a close call. I nearly stumbled. But you didn't. So massive round of applause for the pair of us for getting through the outro one take. Our editing team will be over the moon. Goodbye.